More brandy, sir? No, Branton. Well, that's how the story goes. I'm not, I'm not going to vouch for it, of course. But the commission is over here. It's signed by Prince Rupert. It's for my ancestor, uh, Ralph Musgrave. Yes, to join his cavalry troop at Edge Hill. Ah. Rupert's seal and commission, Holmes. Astonishing. <clears throat> it's one of the boots worn that day. Oh. If I may be so bold, sir. Hmm? The boot was worn by his brother, Sir Roland Musgrave, at Naseby. <laughs> It was indeed. <clears throat> As my butler was once a schoolmaster, I must uh, bow to his scholarship over mine in matters of my own family's history. The following film podcast frequently contains adult content, including foul language and descriptions of adult situations. Spoilers for the films discussed occur often. Listener discretion is advised. Now take it away, Dr. Rausch. <laughs> They must be destroyed on sight! All right, welcome back to They Must Be Destroyed on Sight episode 180 and i am your host lee the origins of the piccolo russell joined by my co-host daniel thank heavens he was wearing his trousers harper how you doing sir i'm doing well uh i only have the problem that 180 is definitely even and even if it wasn't even it would definitely not be prime and so i don't have a math joke to make based on trigonometry or whatever and uh, i feel really uh, disrupted by that i really feel like we should have saved this for a mathematically significant number. But uh, other than that, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Yeah, well, you should have warned me about that ahead of time because I'm so shit at math, I wouldn't have known the difference. Yeah. So, <laughs> And uh, we are once again joined by our friend Jack, scattered throughout the length and breadth of this peninsula. Graham, how are you doing, sir? Fine. Thanks for having me back again. I always try to guess what the uh, what the quote you'll you'll give me will be, and I I never I never manage it. <laughs> In 180 episodes, I've never gotten it either, so it's fine, Jack. <laughs> like, you know. That's the problem. I put so little thought into it that everyone probably just overthinks it when they're. <laughs> well, th- this is it. If if minimal thought works, go with it. Yeah, I mean that's how I've lived my life. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So uh, we're continuing with uh, Sherlock Holmes adaptations. Uh, this time we're breaking our rule and we're just doing a TV show. So, uh, I mean, technically these are mini movies, but we're phoning it in. Is ultimately what we're doing. <laughs> yeah, but we like the uh, Jeremy Brett stuff so much that uh, we had Jack suggest three more Jeremy Brett uh, episodes and uh, excellent ones to talk about. And after this, we're going to do something else and then we're going to move on to the uh robert downey jr sherlock holmes from the guy Ritchie, that guy Ritchie guy who, who did those movies yeah in, in another year we're just going to be doing episodes of friends because we'll just be done so. yeah no we're not going to be doing that uh i hate that show um yeah seinfeld then seinfeld i hate that show too actually <laughs> mad about you no suddenly susan 
No. <laughs> You're in the wrong decade, dude. You're like totally in the wrong decade. We 90s sitcoms are my bag, man. Like I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, you come and back Stephen to... Moffat. Yeah. No, 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 but I, but I but I'm better at criticizing them than Stephen Moffat is. You know how I know? I've watched a Stephen Moffat episode, so you know we're fine. <laughs> <laughs> no, if we if we ever do the WKRP in Cincinnati podcast, you got me, you got me there. But uh, yeah. okay, okay, okay. Night. I have I have an anecdote. I have right. an anecdote about WKRP Cincinnati. If you want to hear it, mm-hmm. I used to stay up late to watch late night television when it started on ITV in the late eighties. It was a, in Britain up until the late eighties, television just used to stop around about sort of 11 o'clock, you know, and then suddenly ITV started doing television all through the night. It was tremendously exciting. You know, you had to be there, I know, but it was. And ITV <laughs> just used to fill up the all through the night schedule with just any old crap they could get. And some of it became absolutely appointment television for me as like, you know, an 11 year old kid staying up to watch Sledgehammer and Married with Children. And... <laughs> oh, God, Married with Children. I grew up on that show. So yeah. Much. And one night, I think I'm remembering this rightly, they used to do a thing where the presenter would say, we're going to put a movie on, and it's this movie or that movie, and you phone in to vote for what movie you want. Oh. And Despite... like, or people would call in, because that's those are the only people that had a telephone in Britain in the 1980s, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, it was, yeah, no. yeah. yeah, and it was like 3am. You know, One night, I think I'm remembering this rightly, the choice was Lindsay Anderson's If, which is... Oh subsequently become one of my favorite films of all time yeah and dracula the 1979 version with frank langella Um, and of course i'm me at that age so i want to watch dracula i've never uh seen this one it's a new dracula so that comes on but it's it's so late you know and i've got to go back to school in the morning that I, i can't stay up I just so I set the timer on the video i don't know you youngsters probably don't remember this but when you had uh videos and you'd set the timer you always used to set it to start like five minutes in advance of the time that it said in, in the, in the TV guide, the radio times, as we used to say, uh, just in case it started early because you didn't want to miss any. So for years, my home recorded VHS copy of the 1979 Dracula with Frank Langella in it had the last five minutes of one episode of WKRP in Cincinnati. on it. <laughs> <laughs> and those two things are now completely linked in my brain. Yeah. No, no, I get that. I get that. Yeah. If I, if I watch that movie now, without first seeing the last five minutes of that particular episode of WKRP Cincinnati, I don't feel like I've watched it. Okay, so what episode of WKRP in Cincinnati was it? That's the okay. real question. It was, there was a guy who was, he, he was trying to prove that marijuana slowed your reflexes or something. <laughs> Yes. So they got him to smoke marijuana and then do a test where he had to hit a button in response to something yes. live on air. And he was supposed to not be able to do it. And every time he just did it like that did instantaneously. Quicker, yeah. <laughs> and there was, there was, I think there was somebody in a, in an animal outfit. It was a chicken suit or a lobster suit. No, it was a pig. It was a pig. Mm-hmm. It was a guy in a pig suit. Uh, yeah. And he was, I think he was painting the wall or something like that. <laughs> yeah. And he thought it was hallucination there. Yeah. That's right. Uh, yeah. The no, thing for I, me was that WKRP did air in reruns in my uh, in my market when I was a kid, 
and I like completely avoided it for terrible, terrible reasons. So, like, I was a shitty kid and uh, a couple of years <laughs> younger than you guys. So uh, I have no like uh, contextual knowledge of David. I am, I am absolutely convinced that Bailey Quarters would have been a, a, ma- a major influence in your sexual development if you had. Uh, <laughs> well, you, you know, like, you know, it, as if as if you would know anything about that based on us doing 180 episodes together. <laughs> Maybe we should possibly move past this and actually get into the movies uh you know like or not like we could you know it's uh yeah no it's we can talk about daniel's sexual awakening if you want i mean i mean we could (laughs) could, believe me you know that is the kind of thing we do on this show yeah but moving on yeah (laughs) (laughs) we do have a couple comments here so we'll get to them really quick jeff williams this time with his spooky recommendation of the week this and this is spooky spooky that's what you have to say in october it's the internet and oh. it's 2019, and no. it's October. Spoopy. No, no. Spoopy. I, no. I don't like that. Don't is say that. that. Is, is that like a combination of spooky and poop? Is, is that is no, no, no. It's just it's spooky is sort of like the cute version of spooky. So instead of it being you know like actually scary, it's kind of like the cute's kind of scary. You know, that sounds like that's for cowards who don't want to be scared. Like me, I am incredibly terrified of everything. So like that's that's why I, 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 I want to be scared by movies when I don't want to be spoopied. There's no spoopy. Spoopy is cancelled. There we go. See, Jack. Fair enough. Jack, fair enough. You're outvoted. Jack. Jack is the voice of reason on this. I'm I'm outvoted. Anyway, let's do the let's do the recommendation. Yeah, and, and the coincidence, I had actually just watched this movie the night before he recommended it on the uh, TMB DOS Facebook page. And this oh, is, is, that, is that the best place to reach us if you were going to try to reach us? I've heard that somewhere, yeah. It's been a while since we've heard that, but like it is the thing I've heard. <laughs> this is Beyond the Door 3, a.k.a. A Muck Train. Uh, from 1989, and this was Beyond the Door was like a, an Italian film series, and this is just one of those ones where it's like, oh, we've got a movie sitting around, let's give it a title from a popular series, even though it has nothing to do with that series. Yeah, I'm just thinking of like Behind the Green Door, that's kind of where, <laughs> where my headspace is. Uh, uh, so, after fleeing a hostile uh, Serbian village, a group of traveling American students seek refuge on a passing train that becomes possessed by a murderous demonic force. Death, dismemberment, and impossible choo-choo physics ensue. An Italian slasher in satanic panic clothing that is silly beyond belief but never becomes self-conscious of its own utterly ridiculous plot contrivances, developments, or characters. Lots and lots of stupid fun and surprisingly well executed considering how extraordinarily goofy it is. You guys really need this great A cheese in your lives, along with a generous helping of devil horn imagery. Yeah, it is batshit insane, and I enjoyed it. It's it's a it's a good terrible Italian horror film. That train still sounds better than a virgin train. That's a British person joke. Don't worry about it. Uh-huh. That's well, a, a Richard Branson joke to me to to yeah. my headspace. But yeah. same thing. Yeah. <laughs> and, a muck uh, train sounds like it should be about a train that gets horny every five yeah. years and has to go back to the station it comes from in order to mate with another train in a highly ritualized manner. That's a Star Trek joke. Don't worry about it. Yeah, it's the, it's the kind of train where, you know, sometimes the light is green and sometimes the light is red, and it's almost always red until it's green, and then you barrel through it at the highest possible speed. No, I, I got the I got the amok time joke. I know I know pun far, sir. I beg your pardon. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know uh, Spock and uh, and Kirk going shirtless and fighting uh, with yeah. big staffs. Yeah. Uh, now we're talking about your sexual awakening. We are, yeah, yeah, really. Um, well, redheads and green skin; those are the two things that uh, 
that Lee knows. So yeah, and then they had one of those, and uh, well, I don't know if they had it in the original Star Trek series, but they did have it in Enterprise. Uh, no, they had Orion slave girls with red hair. So or was it the J.J. Abrams films? I can't remember one or the other. Um, I know there's one in the J.J. Abrams film. So yeah, I, I never watched Enterprise. You know why? Because nobody watched the Enterprise. Yeah, because it wasn't that good. <laughs> it was really bad. Uh, we have a YouTube comment. And it's a good one again. Two weeks in a row. Wow. Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, this is from Shadowman4710. Yeah, 7% solution is a lot of fun, despite some of its more problematic aspects of the whole Muslim maniacs want our women's subplot. The acting is extremely good. Robert Duvall's bizarre quasi-British accent aside. And it's a great-looking 70s film, as you guys point out. As for A Scandal in Bohemia, I've never seen this episode of The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes. And you're right, it sticks to the original storyline pretty closely, only adding things to make the story more understandable. Great job. Thank you very much. Is he saying great job? Or, pardon me, I don't know the gender of this person. Are they saying great job to the episode which they claim not to have seen or to us for describing the episode that they claim not to have well, seen. I, I'm, I'm assuming they're saying that due to us talking about it, they actually went and watched it. So. Yeah, I like to think that they got halfway through that sentence and then went and found it on YouTube and watched it and then didn't go back and delete the original thing and like had... No, that's a great comment. I appreciate that. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean... We should not be critical of any positive. No, no, no. We should not. I'm not actually being critical of the comment. I'm very happy about it. I'm just being a douchebag because that's just kind of where my head is right now. But uh, you know, it's fine. We're fine. Uh, But yeah, there you go. Thank you for the comments, guys. And uh, now we can move on to what we've watched in the last little while. I know we all have a little bit something to talk about, so uh, I'll move over to you first, Jack. Okay, uh, firstly, I want to plug something that's upcoming from me, which is I just, last night, I recorded an episode of watching Robocop with Kit Power, and uh, that should should be up soon, and that was a lot of fun, so look out with that. So so one of the things I've been watching recently has been Robocop, Uh, I've seen it before. (laughs) But uh, I love that movie. Um, if you want to know you in watch detail, it before you recorded the episode, or did you watch it for the first time while recording the episode? Is the question. W- watching it with Kit, I, I was watching it. Well, we we actually went through this rigmarole at the start of the episode. I tried to calculate exactly how many times I've seen it, and uh, I think we ended up on estimating that it was somewhere between eight and ten times. So. Oh, okay, okay. So you have seen that before. I wasn't once sure. or twice. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, so that's upcoming. Uh, if you, for some reason, like listening to me talk, they, you can look out for that. Kit's on it anyway, so that's good. I went to see a film. I don't know. It's an obscure Kit sort still of... Owes us, Kit who still owes us royalties for writing the Tommy book, by the way. Yeah. Kit. Yeah. If you're listening, which I know you're not because you're too famous for us now. That's right. He's too famous for, yeah. for us now. Yeah. 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 He's forgotten the little people that helped him get to the top. It always happens. Yeah, so I went to see a, a, an obscure little talked-about movie that you might have heard of called Joker. Um, there's uh, There's been a little bit of talk about it, I, I understand, but not much. Uh, yeah, it's a movie. It's actually about um, sort of the origins of the com- of the obscure comic book character, the Joker. I uh, heard it was is, is really that... not funny. Like, is, a, it's, not, it's not a lot of jokes in it? That's true. It's not funny. It it is definitely not a funny film. Is that is that the first part of the trilogy with a toker and a midnight smoker being the second and third part? You know, <laughs> no, no. Right. It's it's actually the second part of a tetralogy because the first part was Stoker with uh, Mia Wasikowska a few years ago. Ah, wow, <laughs> wow. wow, good pull. Uh, I thought you, you um, two are fucking amazing. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> when we out nerdly wrestle, that's the, that's when you know. <laughs> continue, Jack. Continue. Yeah, um, that reminds me of that old um, Leon Herring joke about uh, Richard Herring used to, used to say, "Yeah, I watched two thousand and one, but I didn't really understand it because uh, you know I, the last one in the series I watched was ten, and the story has changed a lot in the intervening in the intervening films." Yeah, so I don't really want to add to the enormous amount of Joker discourse there is, but I'll say this. I liked it. I I thought it was good. I might be talking about that on another podcast with Kit and uh, somebody else. We'll we'll let that percolate because hopefully that's going to happen. I watched for the first time the Frank Darabont adaptation of the Stephen King novella The Mist from 2007. Mm-hmm. I hated that. Uh, it was it was well made, but I just hated the whole ethos of the film. It's consciously you know saying stuff about the human race, you know, and the human condition, and the things it's saying I thought were just cynical and juvenile and stupid and nasty, and it just left a nasty, it just left a bad taste in my mouth. I really didn't like it. It was like Lord of the Flies in a main uh, supermarket, uh, and I hate Lord of the Flies. So yeah, I, I didn't like that. And I've also been rewatching the first series of the X Files for some reason, after not having seen that for years, and I'm kind of. I'm kind of surprised by a how good it is in some ways and how terrible it is in other ways, but mainly just sitting there marveling at the glorious transcendent wonder that is Gillian Anderson. Mm. Didn't she, hasn't she quit now? Like any future seasons of like the revival of X-Files, I think like she's, she's not signed on for them anymore. She's like, I'm not doing it anymore. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. So, like, I haven't I think... seen any of the revival. So, but uh, yeah, yeah, she says she's had uh, enough now. Yeah, the revival's not good, and it's like, well, good luck with... I mean, you know, I like David Duchovny and all, but the series did okay without him for a while, too, but not so much Jillian Anderson. That's right, because it had um, Robert Patrick in it, who's in mm-hmm. uh, who, who who's in Terminator 2, which I've never seen. So, Well, that movie doesn't... Does that even exist? Is that, no, that's Robocop 2 that doesn't that's exist. That's Robocop 2 that doesn't exist. Yeah, Terminator 2 definitely exists. I have strong opinions about Terminator 2, and you can find that on the same feed with the uh, Kit Power Robocop uh, podcast. I was doing a live com on that like uh, two years ago, back when I used to do podcasts about things that weren't genocidal racist. It's a, yeah. Yeah, it's a, yeah. yeah, it was a golden time. But yeah. I've talked enough now, I think. Yeah, uh, Daniel, what have you watched lately? I have not been listening to Nazi podcasts for the last week, uh, basically for complicated reasons, which you can find out about if you listen to the next episode of the podcast we're about to release, Um, which if you, this is your first, I can't imagine this is anybody's first episode of this podcast, but anyway, um, you know, if it is, then you find out at the end, it's fine. It would be amazing if suddenly we got like a thousand listeners to this episode and it was like, you know, Oh my God. We have to know what you think of these three Jeremy Brett episodes. What, what an episode <laughs> to jump on. Holy yeah, shit. Yeah. Can you imagine like this being the first episode? Um, <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, it turns out when you don't spend like 30 or 40 hours a week listening to uh, awful people talk about awful things, you uh, watch uh, movies instead. And uh, I mostly just uh, rewatched some stuff and uh, none of which I particularly want. I rewatched most of Sin City, the, the original 2005 Sin City. Um, which just made me want to watch a lot of noir because, uh, well, I loved that when I was uh, in my mid twenties. Yeah, it, I mean, it holds up for what it is, but it also just like, yeah, no, no, this is not, this is not the thing. Anyway, complicated feels about that. But the one thing I really did want to mention, which I wasn't going to mention until like this morning, when fucking Robert Forrester died, is I rewatched Jackie Brown earlier this week. It showed up on Netflix, and I was like, oh yeah, Jackie Brown. I just put it on, 
And dear God, we should do that movie on this podcast sometime. Leap. Um, <laughs> I think we kind of. How long was that podcast we did about? I don't. I honestly don't remember. That was the one episode where I got drunk enough that I do not actually remember recording that episode. No. Um, <laughs> well, clearly Lee, that's the one to jump onto. Lee well, tells should, me that was a good episode, but, um, but if it was, a, it's not because of me. We should do a commentary episode on it, maybe sometime. I would love to do that. I well, and what it what it, it's actually kind of an emotional thing for me because Robert Forrester. I saw that movie when I was eighteen years old. Robert Forrester was, I think, like fifty eight at that point, mm-hmm. um, fifty seven, fifty eight, something like that. And now I'm almost forty, and Robert Forrester is dead, <laughs> yep. which means that I'm like halfway between the age that I was then and Robert Forrester was then. I always kind of thought like the you know, the, the mechanics of that movie, like sort of that, his opinion, like the, the way he expressed kind of getting older was how I really hoped I would embrace getting older. And I kind of have like, like it, like it, it actually like it was one of those movies that sort of like, at least in terms of my own kind of personal uh, relationship with like kind of getting gray and white hair and my beard and stuff. It taught me something. It kind of influenced my life and it's completely through Robert Forrester's performance, which is uh, like fucking amazing. I've always kind of taken that like dear to my heart and in a, in a weird way. And I fucking love that movie. It's great. Also, I really, I rewatched it <laughs> and I've seen that movie, you know, 20 or 30 times or something like I've re I've rewatched it a lot. I owned that movie. I still own that movie somewhere in this house on VHS. I literally own that movie. VHS, DVD, It's whenever it's streaming, I just kind of put it on. It's great. <laughs> I realized that I've seen that movie enough to actually like remember the plot. And like my wife was kind of poking me, like, hold on, what, what's going on here? And I could like, oh, no, no, you don't know this yet. It's fine. I can explain this to you. You're about to find out this and that. It's a gloriously constructed narrative. It's a gloriously constructed detective plot or kind of crime film sort of thing. It's, it's, it's an amazing, amazing film. And I'm only assuming that the episode that I don't remember that we recorded about Jackie Brown was pretty good and you should probably go listen to that if nothing else and to um know more about that episode than i do so probably one of our best episodes as far as i'm concerned i rewatched that movie and i wasn't even going to talk about it until robert forrester died yeah. i really want to go back and look at like early robert forrester i want to do that soon because it's something i was meant to do and now that he's dead i feel like maybe we should draw a little attention to him you know mm-hmm. yeah we could do like some of his better films or we could do like some of his more exploitation stuff he was doing in the 80s like vigilante and alligator and uh, stuff like that yeah, yeah. No, i'd love to do some of the some of the exploitation stuff honestly you know like um yeah, no. Because you, you know just, that's where... It made me sad. Like, I saw it, and it was just, like, I was on Twitter, like, 10 minutes after, you know, the like, the initial news reports went out that he died. And I saw somebody when we go, R.I.P. Robert Forrester, and I went, fuck. Yeah. You know, it's just, like, that was one of those, like, you know, kind of... Did you hear what it was, too? No, I didn't hear... I didn't even know what it was. Brain cancer. Oh, God. And and from what I've read, you know, uh, died surrounded by friends and family. Sounds like something he probably knew he had for a while, and he was still working right up until 2019. Yeah, still, because, you know, what else are you going to... I mean, a gent, a gent, a minch, if we can say that. Yeah. Um, anyway. Apparently super high IQ too. He was he was a member of like one of those not Mensa but like another one that was 99th percentile of Don't make me dislike him. Like, don't <laughs> don't do that to me. You know, don't, don't don't tell me he was like obsessed with his high IQ. And he was yeah, no. I like I would I would much rather remember him as, as Max Cherry. Yeah. Um, 
Now that's the working actor who you know continued to work till his last days because even when he had brain cancer, uh, then to think that he was like a member of Mega or you know the the three Alpha Society or whatever the fuck that thing is. Like anyway, yeah. Don't tell me he got into evil psych in his last couple of years and was like, it turns out the white race is the superior race. Like oh kinda, god, that would be terrible. Kind of really did it. That just sort of transitions over to what I've watched uh, recently. Uh, we didn't I plan watched... this at all. We never. No, we didn't anything. actually. Yeah. This actually just happened by a certain. Like I actually didn't hear that he died until after I watched this too, and it came out on the day he fucking died. Uh, El Camino, the uh, Breaking Bad movie, which is basically like the epilogue to the Jesse story uh, at the end of uh, the Breaking Bad series. Really good. Surprisingly, did you watch the show? Oh, I, yeah, I, 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 oh, I watched yeah. the show. I but you don't need to have seen the show actually to like this movie. Um, it's it's that well done. Um, there are flashbacks. There is fan service stuff where there's flashbacks with like new scenes shot with people from the show and everything. Right? You know, Walter White has an appearance, and Mike has an appearance, and uh, there's a bunch of stuff involving basically the time that Jesse spent uh, imprisoned by the neo Nazis who were running drugs or whatever. You know, mm-hmm. uh, where. Uh, He's making the meth for them, and he's in that fucking cage they keep him in. The uh, you know the baby faced uh, neo Nazi there, Todd. He he comes back, although he's noticeably fatter than he was in the series, thirty forty pounds fatter. <laughs> Jesse Plemons, who is a phenomenal actor, and mm-hmm. you know, like you, you wish, like that last season. I don't know. We have problems with that season uh, in this household, but uh, it's fine. Yeah, but, I'm hoping uh, to watch that soon myself. I just haven't uh, had the chance in the last yeah. like twenty four hours, so. But I won't spoil anything, but I mean, I, I thought it was really good. I, I honestly thought it was way better than I really expected it to be because I just thought it was going to be, okay, we're just banking off the name of Breaking Bad or whatever. But it was actually fantastic. It's a like a low-key, almost minimalist 70s crime film kind of approach to it. It's not like a lot of action or explosions or something you might expect maybe if they were trying to make a Breaking Bad movie. It's just very. It's it's basically just about Jesse trying to get the fuck out of town. That's all the movie is. Is just he just keeps running into situations that are keeping him in town, and he's got to find a way out. Robert Forster reprises his, his character as the uh, guy who changes your identity for you for a fee and gives you a new life. And the scene with him is great in it. Jesse comes to his uh, his vacuum shop. And tries to get his identity changed, and there's this whole great scene with that. I loved it. I, I thought it was great. It's one of the best movies I've seen this year, actually. It's that good. Oh, well, we, I'll, I'll definitely have to watch it before the end of the year, then, for sure. I must yep. get on and watch Breaking Bad one of these days. <laughs> well, like I said, you don't actually have to watch Breaking Bad to enjoy this movie, because everything's easy to follow. The uh, flashbacks, even though they are fan service, and they're like, oh, yeah, Walter White and this and that. You don't actually have to know who any of those people are. The movie explains it enough. Like, it gives you enough hints to what, of what happened. And also, if you had seen the series and you'd forgotten, Netflix provides you a four-minute highlight reel of, here's what happened in the actual series, in case you fucking forgot. Now here's the movie. <laughs> so, oh, that's, that's thoughtful. Yeah, so you can do that. You know, Netflix always looking out for us, the consumer. Yeah. I ended Breaking Bad in the last year or so. I didn't watch it at all until like, and then I kind of like mainlined it, and I like listened to the Breaking Bad Insider podcast, which was uh, made by like one of the editors 
who worked on the show and like brought on people and did it was sort of one of the but kind of as a fan from the inside it was kind of this weird thing and that was kind of the ideal thing was to to kind of absorb it through that uh process it was it was great also uh you know as someone studying organic chemistry it's also nice to know oh yeah no this uh, you know it makes me feel like a badass i can go blow things up it's fine we're good we're good makes a blue mess and uh, you know yeah, no. The, the chemistry is mostly good in the in the show. It's mostly very, very good. Anarchist cookbook, good. Probably even better than that, honestly. Yeah. Wow. Not that I would know anything about anything on that <laughs> level. <laughs> My main priority with drama is always is the chemistry. Actually. Yeah, no, no. So well, yeah. yeah, yeah. The main thing that you learn doing uh, doing organic chemistry is how to pronounce things like two four six trinitrotoluene which is the correct chemical name for uh, TNT. This is a and how to make show, it. Daniel, I will not have you use that language on this podcast. So I'm not saying I know how to make dynamite, but uh, any person that's taken year two of organic, or second semester organic chemistry knows how to make it. The question is, can you make it safely? That's always the question with organic chemistry. Anyway, we should move away from this topic. Really, really should before you put us on a fucking watch list of some sort. Yeah. <laughs> if we're not already on a watch list, like it's fine. <laughs> All right, uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're going to play a little bit of music, some podcast promos, and we're going to come back with some Jeremy Brett goodness. You ungodly warlock. Mmm, great coffee. Mmm. Hey. Chad, who's that strange, somber man on the cover of that book you're reading? Oh, that's H.P. Lovecraft. Oh, I've heard of him, but I never really got into his stuff. It's kind of strange and hard to read. No, I used to think that, too. But that all changed when I started listening to the H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast. What's that? The H.P. Lovecraft Literary Podcast is a weekly podcast. Tell me more. Well, these two really smart and hilarious guys give a synopsis of the story, then they talk about its background, the critical views, and what it says about the author. Well, where can I listen? Let me tell you, Chris. You can go to hppodcraft.com or, heck, just subscribe through iTunes. It's that easy. Oh, Chad, I'm so excited. Now I can listen to this podcast and pretend to all my snooty friends that I actually read and understand H.P. Lovecraft. Hey, that's what I do. <laughs> oh, dear. Looking for something different in your podcast library? Then why not check out the podcast Under the Stairs? I'm the host Duncan McLeish and joining me each week will be a special guest as we examine some classic old school horror favourites as well as some modern classics. That's not to say that we don't tackle some of the, let's say, more questionable entries into the horror genre. And if all that wasn't enough, we have a subset of shows called Baz V Horror, where our horror novice, The Baz, tackles horror in all shapes and forms to see who will come out victorious. So what are you waiting for? The show can be found at podcastunderthestairs.wordpress.com and on Stitcher and iTunes. The Podcast Under The Stairs is a proud member of Legion Podcast Network. This is Duncan McLeish from Under The Stairs, signing off. You ungodly warlock!
The Norwood Builder from 1985, directed by Kim Grieve, uh, written by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, John Hawksworth, and Richard Harris. Not that Richard Harris, a different Richard Harris. Jeremy Bright as Sherlock Holmes. David Burke as Dr. John Watson. Rosalie Crutchley as Mrs. Lexington. Uh, Colin Jeevens as Lestrade. Matthew Sloan as John Hector McFarlane, Jonathan Adams as Jonas Odaker, Helen Ryan as Miss McFarlane, Rosalie Williams as Miss Hudson, Andy Rashley as the Constable, Anthony Langdon as Tramp, and Ted Carroll as Seafaring Tramp. And we have a synopsis here from Gary KMCD. Knowing that he's about to be arrested for murder, John Hector McFarlane asks Sherlock Holmes' assistance in establishing his innocence. McFarlane is a solicitor who was visited the previous day by Jonas Oldacre, who wanted to draw up a will. McFarlane is astonished to learn that Oldacre was naming him as the beneficiary of his fortune. McFarlane had never met the man who claimed to have known his parents long ago and having no issue of his own, wanted to leave everything to him. McFarlane drew up papers and called at Old Acre's home that evening to have everything signed, but sometime in the night, the man was killed and the body burned beyond all recognition. Inspector Lestrade of Scarland Yard thinks it is an open and shut case, but after Holmes interviews McFarlane's mother, he thinks there is something else afoot. And uh, we'll move over to Jack first for uh, his general thoughts on this. I love this. This is one of my favorites of the early seasons. Um it's a it's a natty little individual mystery. After last week when we did the almost a two parter, um, you know the uh, final problem in the empty house, where it's all what what we would now call mythos and arc, you know, in in the eighties version of those things, where it's Moriarty the arch enemy and Holmes's death, and then he comes back to life and everything. We said a bit last week about how it didn't really work for us, and we preferred. Well, I certainly agreed with what you said about how you know Holmes is better when it's like a well, it's a bit like the X Files, you know, the monster of the week episodes were the best. Were the best. This is one of those. This is the monster of the week episode, and it's 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 great. I I love this one. I love the performances. I love Rosalie Crutchley as the fantastically nasty housekeeper. Um, <laughs> Brett is fantastic in this. I love his Holmes just completely callous about this young man who's obviously terrified, and he's just he's just obviously thrilled. That wonderful bit where he says, "Dear me," like that, and you can tell he he's just he doesn't give a shit about this guy. <laughs> he's just he's so happy to have this fascinating dramatic mystery arrive on his doorstep, and uh, I love that, and I love his fit of despairing depression when he thinks he's lost and i love the rivalry rivalry with lestrade and i love how how what an oily nasty sarcastic jealous little tick lestrade is i love the i, I love some of the the undercurrents of the story this is a really good example of something you get a lot in conan doyle which is weird undercurrents about you know, sex and misogyny and stuff like that. There's a lot of stuff like that in this one bubbling under the surface. I love the little detour where Holmes goes and sits and talks to a tramp for hours mm. and kind of communes with the, the, the life of a tramp. And uh, yeah, and I, yeah, I think it's just great. This one. I love this one. Daniel. Uh, one thing that gets missed in a lot of the sort of commentary about Holmes or the sort of, uh, satires or the the sort of responses is the uh, level of Holmes uh, putting on a bunch of makeup and hanging out with like disreputable people, and, and I find it delightful. Like it's one of the things, and and uh, this series, uh, the ones we've watched from this series, really like highlight that. I, I do I do love that element. 
I love this one, you know, because I don't know. I love it for the reasons that I love kind of all these is that, it, you know, Holmes is not kind of super genius, you know, like kind of like extracting data from the ether kind of thing, but it's all based on just sort of like regular things that he just sort of notices. And I love that like Watson is kind of starting to, you know, he'll poke Watson. Watson, I've reached this conclusion. Tell me how I reached this. He's like trying to teach Watson the methods and Watson's kind of going along with it. I kind of love, I kind of love that aspect to it. Like, oh no, you've got papers. You got this kind of watch. You got this kind of, you know, and it's like, oh, it's great. Um, I love that Lestrade shows up and it's like, uh, yeah, we're gonna like take this guy. Well, no, can you give me thirty minutes? I'd really like to uh, keep questioning him. Oh yeah, sure, feel free. And then like pulls up a chair. Go ahead, question him in front of yeah. us. This yeah. is great, you know. Like you know, please do our work for us. Um, and <laughs> it is, it is very much. It, it's kind of you know the, the antagonism, the, the kind of like weird relationship that he has with the Stride, where they work together, but also there, there, you know, there's there's kind of both a kind of ego, kind of you know, dick measuring contest going on between them, um, but also just they're kind of working across purposes in a lot of ways, where like Holmes isn't necessarily interested in that and. I, I feel like, you know, the at least in terms of kind of my understanding of the home story, there's not ever a, like direct antagonism, but that's something that gets picked up in the kind of noir stories that um yeah. kind of take on from uh from the same kind of general pattern. And I and I just love that Lestrade thinks he's got him like, oh no, no, we've got this solid, it's fine. It's yeah, fine, it's fine. Fine. Then, finally I win. Just yeah, finally I win. And he's like really rubbing it in, and then Holmes is like, Yeah, you you've completely yeah, you you missed the entire point. <laughs> um it's 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 kind of delightful. You get to burn some straw, like that's always fun. Burn straw inside. Yeah. I don't know. Any any movie that has uh, you know, burning straw inside of a an old English house. Yeah, no, I'm down for that. It's great. Yeah, that old trope. Yeah, yeah no, no, no. Yeah, smoke them out it's uh you know i don't know it's so simple and yet like it, it works so well i you know it's it's a great like 50 minutes of television um it's delightful i just i love jeremy brett in this his, his performance is so modulated you know there's a, there's times where he's so you know you feel like he's five seconds away from reaching out and throttling lestrade you know oh god he's, he's he can't even meet his eyes he's just like yeah kill this man there's a fantastic bit where he says he says you know i want to talk to the housekeeper and lestrade sort of says in this very casual way you'll you'll get nothing from her and holmes turns and he looks at him and if looks could kill you know lestrade's mm-hmm. face would be melting and holmes just says nevertheless like that. it's like you know, it's like venom dripping off his tongue it's fantastic and then he goes from that to this wonderful fit of utter despair chucking his guitar um, guitar his violin across the room you know and just sitting in utter disarray in this room completely desolate you know because he thinks Lestrade's won and then Watson has to pick him up and be kind to him and there's this lovely little bit with their relationship in that and and then by the when he figures it out it's like oh I'm fine again I'm okay again now and he goes back into charismatic Holmes business right through to the, the bit with the 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 buckets of straw and and starting the fire and Jeremy Brett does this fantastically camp thing where he's conducting the coppers in their shout of fire. It's, mm-hmm. Yeah, it's brilliant. Yeah. Know, a little bit louder, a little bit louder. Right. Yeah. We can do better than that, gentlemen. <laughs> <laughs> I, I love that he. I love that he asks him. So, uh, would you happen to have any coppers within uh, like shouting range view? Well, I've got three, and I would assume that these are uh, large men with loud voices. <laughs> uh, presumably, yes. 
Uh, please bring them up and tell them to bring some straw, would you? Uh, yeah. It's 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 a little like you know, I'm going to use the police state for my own purposes. Like he he's he's setting a stage. Literally, he's setting a stage at that point. And uh, yeah, no, it's it's pretty delightful. Yeah, this this episode is great in sort of elucidating how you understand why he turns to drug addiction because his primary drug is solving problems. And when he can't, he doesn't have a problem to solve or he hits a stumbling block where it seems like he can't solve a problem. He just goes into a deep depression and then yeah. you see him in his bathrobe with papers scattered everywhere. And, and he's just depressed as all hell. It'll be a common thread through all three of these episodes. I think Jeremy Brett's performances are some of the best from the series in these episodes. I love how he, you know, uh, like, like you mentioned, he, he gets Watson to, uh, do the deducing for him at early on. It's like Watson explain why I know this about this guy. And, and Watson actually picks it up, you know, like Watson has caught on to the sort of simple deductions that Holmes does whenever he meets a person where it's like he just through observation. Oh, here, here's why you're this. Here's why you're that. And I'm probably, you know, 90% of the time spot on as to why you're, you know, here. I like that Holmes is super excited by the fact that he doesn't instantly know everything about this case. This is one where Holmes and Watson have to actually do a lot of footwork on the investigation instead of just interviewing people. Uh, a lot of the times it's like 90% Holmes interviews a bunch of people and it's like, ah, I've got it. <laughs> I've solved the case. But here they actually have to do some fucking forensic work and stuff like that. Like they have to they have to look around and figure out. Well, there's even up. there's even a bit like at the beginning where it's like, oh, have you seen the newspaper? No, I I've just brought it up. And then like because he hasn't read the newspaper, we have to like get it like explained mm. to us in the audience. Whereas like if you'd read the newspaper, be like, Oh no, I solved this already. It's, mm-hmm. like, it's over, you know. Like that's uh yeah, and, and talk about Holmes and Lestrade's um sort of rivalry here. Just how silently pissed off Holmes gets by Lestrade's uh, initial investigation, basically contaminating the crime scene because, you know, Holmes is working on a slightly different level than Scotland Yard where he has, you know, early forensic stuff going on in his mind. Like, yeah, I need, I need the crime scene to be untouched so I can see everything as it, as it was left. And they're just fucking around, like leaving footprints and moving stuff and knocking papers around and shit. And he's like, Oh, you, you, you fuck. And then he's also, <laughs> off. he's also pissed off because I do want to hear Jeremy Brett say you fuck. And exactly <laughs> that's all. <laughs> you fuck. Um, <laughs> and, 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 per, and also it's, he's just really pissed off because there's a, there's a moment where he's like doubting himself. Perhaps Lestrade has actually done a good job for once. That motherfucker, he, he might've actually beat me. And so I like to think that Lestrade is mostly fine. Like, oh, yeah. at, at, you know, but then like you get the like weird ones and then suddenly Lestrade, Lestrade's kind of off in his own, you know, kind of. You almost feel like end. Lestrade stumbles when he's doing cases with Holmes because he's actually trying to compete with Holmes. Otherwise, mm-hmm he probably wouldn't stumble as much in other cases. But then again, the cases that Holmes takes on are extraordinary cases too. So it's like, right. well, Scott's perfectly fine catching like your commonplace murderer or whatever. Right. But, and I'm not saying I know anything about this, but you know, certainly uh, law enforcement, they have like enormous tools to solve these things, but they're really lazy and they're uh, like beholden to certain class interests and uh, people who might want to find people per se, or solve certain kinds of crimes who are not uh, invested in that same kind of a uh, society, um, use uh, more innovative methods. Mm. Um, 
again, I don't know anything about those sorts of things. Um, so yeah, no, yeah, no. Um, there is a kind of snobbery problem inherent in the whole Holmes Scotland Yard dynamic in the stories because in the stories, Holmes is, I mean, Holmes and Lestrade are both middle class, right? Yeah. Um, but Holmes is kind of slightly on his uppers upper middle class and his his family are like rural squires you know and he's got french famous french actors and frame, famous french artists in his in his lineage whereas someone like the strad i mean most of these most of these early inspectors and detectives they were kind of like first generation middle class you know just up from the working class so there is kind of this this thing in the stories where the this the detectives are all sort of these these clod hopping yokels and 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 oafs and stuff and it takes the it takes the the son of a country squire to come in and you know it's a bit unfortunate but i, I that doesn't really come through so much in in sure. and, and law enforcement is a way of sort of entering a sort of like middling class from that from that lower class ultimately and that's yeah. one of the like things that uh, i mean you know even even just uh, you know to, to kind of restate it in more kind of like commonplace American terms is like, yeah, we'll, we'll give you we'll give you a decent job. You work for twenty years and you get your retirement and you know you go off and do your thing. You know, like uh, you know that's a better job to get than most of the jobs, and that's how you attract people to yeah. you know to well, that, yeah betray that was... your to betray a working class um, <laughs> ultimately. You know, and that was definitely a thing in this. And also, era. like I mean... you know, beat black people with a club. That's a you know that's a that's a thing. You know. Yeah. Not to say that every cop is going to do that, you know. But, but it does um, attract a, a certain amount of people certain, who are up for that. A certain class of people, if mm. we can uh, use the pun. Uh, you know, that's, yeah, we're way off topic at this point. But, yeah. you know, like, what else are we going to do? Like, actually talk about the thing we're supposed to talk about? <laughs> if, if our friend Court Syops was here, he'd probably have something to say about cops right now. But yeah, um, Well, we should we should bring him on, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just uh, say, if people if people are interested in the subject of, like, early fictional detectives and early fictional police detectives and private detectives in in english literature and their relationship to the actual phenomenon of like detectives starting in the early police force they should read a book called the invention of murder by judith flanders which is a really good book on that that's mm. that's my recommendation for that and it saves us having to have the conversation so oh, there we go. yeah just go um, read a book instead of listening to us talk but i will Hit say pause I, right now uh, i will say i'm glad you brought it up daniel though um the more I watch this series, the more it is really focused on uh, highlighting the lower classes of British society at this period. It's just the major disparity between the upper class, the middle class, and the lower class is really fucking striking is presented in this series where either you you've got a job and you're just barely surviving and you know you have you know maybe good clothes in a house but just barely and you're maybe like one little stumbling block in your life away from all of a sudden becoming the fucking tramp drinking from yeah. a bottle you know um because yeah. the the tramp he talks to is a war veteran and he's just you know he's just moving around from town to town he's he's drinking from the bottle he's wearing his old fucking uh uniform that that he that he had when he was in in the service and there's nothing there for him there's no social safety net or anything like that for, for absolutely him. no there's a real strain of social commentary in this episode and it, it it does come from the this is a this is another thing i've been saying about this series what's some part of what's great about it is it does take this stuff that's in the original texts but it really does develop it and work it up you know so that it it they they make these very thoughtful adaptations so you get all this there is a lot of social commentary in this episode. There's a lot, of, as you say, about the tramps, and you get the feeling that um, 
the McFarlands are kind of just hanging on, you know, because the father yeah. died, and then the young man has his job as a uh, as as a lawyer, uh, a solicitor, and you know they're they're doing fine, but you you know the the mother is dependent upon him, and you get the feeling like you know if he goes to jail, if he gets hanged, she's going to be out on the street. That's kind of implied, I think. And yeah. uh, meanwhile, there's this guy Oldacre, who's this really successful businessman he's got money piled up and it's not enough for him he wants more and more and his big plan is to just kill this tramp i mean spoilers but you know that that's what he does they just think well we'll lure this tramp in and kill him and pass his body off as mine so they they just have no no respect for this guy's life whatsoever he's just material to these to these fucking people and you you get that from the housekeeper as well holmes sort of tries to draw her out on her attitudes and she just says well they i work why can't they work you know this woman who's like yeah. she's probably first generation middle class herself you know housekeeper and she's just got her fingers into the next rung up and it's like yeah fuck the poor you know mm-hmm. and it's yeah i like that it actually shows a, a tramp putting down like a tramp mark basically in the property to like hey this is a place you can go to get free clothes he, he mm-hmm. th- thinks it's a place that's like charitable to uh to vagrants and stuff right yeah yeah so there's a lot of that sort of social observation in the stories conan doyle had a real eye for stuff like that and as i say another thing i love about this story is the whole thing about i mean i think old is a brilliant villain because he's so nasty he's such a venomous hateful vindictive bastard you know and there's sort of that vicious scoring out of the woman's face in the photograph and all this years later because she spurned him you know it's a great uh, comment i think on and the excuses the excuses the guy makes for himself too it's like oh well you know john mcfarlane he 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 wouldn't have i I would have made sure he wouldn't have hung you know it's it's just a joke it's just a prank like no you're you're fucking with people's lives just because you're you're this petty misogynist motherfucker who didn't get the woman he wanted early on in your life like you you, you're a piece of garbage yeah and you've held on to that for years and now Mm. you're you're doing this despicable thing because you know finally you see your a your opportunity to get petty revenge and ruin two people's lives uh, you know and murder a guy and then effectively murder another guy and yep. also uh make off with all your ill-gotten gains and uh, start a new life you know yeah what a bastard yeah. uh the only other two things i wanted to mention um i love that john mcfarland comes up and introduces himself as the unhappy john mcfarland <laughs> <laughs> like, okay so that's something and uh i just dug the uh the period the sort of victorian period fireman's brigade the the metal helmets that are oh yeah uh, yeah and and you can still see that sort of helmet design in in modern firefighters helmets uh slightly changed of course but still basically the same sort of thing great episode i love this episode it was good yeah let's move on fuck uh, that one who cares anymore we're done yeah the Musgrave ritual. What we do. We we just we, we once we're done, we're done. Fuck we're that done. one. Yeah, so, no, it's done. It doesn't exist. Musgrave ritual from 1986, directed by David Carson, uh, written by Conan Doyle, John Hawksworth, and Jeremy Paul. We have Edward Hardwick this time as Watson, James Hazeldine as Richard Bunton, Michael Culver as Sir Reginald Musgrave, Joanna Kirby as Rachel Howells. Uh, Teresa Banham as Janet Trigalis, Ian Martyr as Inspector Faraday, and Patrick Blackwell as Trigalis. Synopsis here from Gary KMCD again. Accompanied by Dr. Watson, Sherlock Holmes heads off to West Sussex to spend a weekend with his old schoolmate, Sir Reginald Musgrave. 
In fact, Holmes isn't at all fond of Musgrave and confides in Watson that he'd had better conversation with Musgrave's butler, Richard Brunton, who is quite intelligent. Holmes soon has a mystery to solve when the butler disappears after Sir Reginald caught him going through his private papers and dismissed him. The documents he seemed interested in were a very old poem that all the Musgraves would recite as children. It's obviously a treasure map of some sort, and Sir Reginald admits that they all sought out the treasure at one time or another over several generations, but were never able to find. Uh, Holmes is convinced that by solving the mystery of the Musgrave ritual, they will solve the mystery of Brunton's disappearance, as well as that of another servant who has gone missing since. Jack, what do you think of this one? Again, this is, well, I mean, I chose these, so they're, they're going to mm. be my favorites, aren't they? This oh, is one of my... Did you choose these? I chose these, yeah. Usually, and therefore, they're ones that you like. God, you're catching up behind the scenes. Yeah, behind the scenes drama. Well, it's not really behind the scenes because this Lee actually left that in the end of the last episode, so it's it's actually. Oh, I don't listen to this podcast. Oh no, very. I wouldn't recommend it. Yeah, no, don't do that. Yeah, but uh, this is one another of my favorite episodes of this series. That's why I chose it. This is one of the ones that's most different from the original text, actually, because yeah. one of the, the things this series did, it, it's known for its faithfulness. And this is very faithful to the text in spirit, but it changes it a lot because the original story is just Holmes telling Watson about something that happened to him when he was a student. Yeah. Um, it's like it, at the start of this episode, you, you see that Holmes has got this box full of his notes of his early work in it. In the original story, Watson he, like, puts his feet up on it. I love that. Detail. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Watson finds that box and there's like, you know, Holmes tells him all about these cases, like the, these fabulous titles that Conan Doyle gives the stories he doesn't write, the, the singular affair of the aluminium crutch and things like that. And the, the story of the Musgrave ritual is one of those old cases in the box in sort of, that Holmes is telling Watson about in present day for them, Baker Street. And so Watson's not, Watson doesn't meet Musgrave or go to Musgrave Manor or anything like that. That's all happened. That's all happening to Holmes when he's like 19 or something. Um, so they yeah, changed like this. I think this is like, this is like uh, Sherlock Holmes as uh, Encyclopedia Brown. Like he was solving this when he was 13, which would explain the trigonometry aspect. But uh, yeah. we'll get to that. Uh, well, it is a bit kind of public schoolboy shenanigans, isn't it? In yeah, places. Yeah. 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 It reminds oh, me I of, found uh, out the height of a tree based on, like, and then I did some math, cosines. And therefore, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, it's very, uh, I'm always delighted when trigonometry comes up. And anything because you know I minored in math, but but also yeah, it feels very like of that particular kind of attitude. You know, mm. did Doyle but, himself go to uh, one of these like ritzy schools? Like, what's what's Doyle's background? I assume I don't know actually. I assume Doyle must he he must have gone to a fairly good set of schools because he went to Edinburgh University. Because he studied yeah. medicine at Edinburgh University, I think that's right. Anyway, um, so yeah, he must have gone to a prep school and a public school and got the qualifications he needed that way. I'm I'm pretty sure. I'm not tremendously up on the details of his life, but yeah, he's sort of upper middle class, Conan Doyle. So the fact that this is very much an adaptation with lots of changes, it allows them to put loads of stuff in. So there's there's a lot of this that is completely original. It's just something the writers dreamt up, and I I think the stuff they dream up is great. Like they've got loads stuff in this about Holmes and the and the and the drugs and just blissful sequences where Holmes is off his fucking tits mm-hmm. 
it's he's tripping with balls during sections of this. And Jeremy, I mean, again, you said we'd be doing this. Jeremy Brett's just brilliant in those sections yeah. where Holmes is just absolutely fucking munted. It's it's brilliant. <laughs> and I think it's a it's it's a story that was very. You know, I saw it when I was quite a young kid, and bits of it are pretty scary, like the stuff in, you know, to a young kid anyway, like finding the the body asphyxiated and propped up in a standing position in rigor mortis in the crypt and stuff like that. That's great. With like the uh, hand like up and like grasping, so yeah, like it's a very like evocative image. You see, his, you see his knuckles and stuff are all like scraped and shit, and like he was he was trying to push the uh, the stone up, but he couldn't do it, and yeah. It's, there's lots of Poe in this and a bit of M.R. James and stuff like oh, that. Oh, I think M.R. James is did, later did you, than this. Did you, but... did you hack my computer and get my notes? You made it... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there is. I, I can't remember which one. It's almost first. if we all noticed the same references. The same so, things, yeah. yeah. But I think M.R. James either stole a bit from this or the other way around. I, I don't know. Well, but... it had to be, he, had to, he had to stole it from this because he was writing after Conan Doyle. He was, after right yeah so he's stealing it from conan doyle which is fine steal away because you have the of course yeah the mr james story awarding to the curious which involves yeah. the finding of an ancient crown Barrel, um, the, the buried anglo-saxon crowns yeah yeah although yeah. anybody crown, writing detective fiction after like 1900 is stealing from yeah, conan yeah. Doyle. but uh course, but this yeah. isn't detective fiction though this is different but um yeah but the the crown in uh the crown in this story is the uh, Charles the First crown that actually wasn't missing. Like that was broken up after Charles the First was. Uh, he, he there was the abolition of the monarchy by Cromwell, and then the execution of Charles the First, and then that Man. crown was actually broken up and sold. But here, for the story's sake, it's like, oh no, the crown was lost. Like when crown when when Charles the First tried to flee or his family fled, they they hid the the crown somewhere. Yeah, absolutely. So this taps into that legend and i this, I, this is the kind of education you get when you live in the dominion of canada or <laughs> the place formerly known as where the head of state is still the queen as opposed to those of us in the uh barefoot hinterlands i only know this story uh, too because what what it what it sparked for me was like okay yeah this is the mr james stuff warning to the curious and i knew sort of the background of that oh missing crown and it was oh that sounds familiar <laughs> that sounds really fucking familiar. Yeah, so. I, I'm pretty sure there's only one king of England we learned about in my like uh, like high school history courses, and that's King George. And it's called "We Kicked His Ass." That's all you know. Yeah, that's all yeah. you learn. And um, uh, well, you won't you won't bait me with that because I'm on your side. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not trying to bait you. I'm just trying to express my own ignorance. <laughs> You know, I'm just trying to say, like, I knew nothing of this. Like, oh, there's a crown and it's burned. Like, oh, that sounds amazing. That should well, be something we yeah. should have learned about in school. I have no this idea. Is, yeah, we had a we had a civil war too, Daniel. In fact, we had one before you, quite a, quite yeah, a long time yeah. before you. Yeah, and well, um, we uh, we killed our king, which is something I'm I'm still very proud of. And uh, yeah, but of course, then we brought them back. Fuck's sake! But there well, you go. That's that's the English for you. The entire possibility we're going to have another one pretty soon. So you know, yeah. like. Uh, but this you know, is we'll i love this because one of the things about this is it, it it does that great thing that that great drama does where it ties the themes and the plot together in in a lovely sort of integrated whole and there's i love the class stuff in this as you'd imagine i love the the whole sort of setup with musgrave as just this dim-witted aristocrat and um brunton <laughs> I, I, the butler 
as just manifestly much more educated and intelligent to the fact where he knows Musgrave's own family history better than Musgrave does. And he isn't the slightest bit shy about saying it out loud either, which makes Holmes explode with laughter. And it ties in with the whole Civil War thing, because that's that's kind of about, you know, it's kind of about commoners rising up and uh, getting rid of their useless, dim-witted, aristocratic lord, isn't it? Yeah, Daniel, what do you think? I like this. I mean, you know, I've been kind of like snarking on it slightly, but that's not that's not in a negative way. That's in a just sort of like I, I enjoyed this one. I thought it was a fun story. I legitimately do love the the schoolboy antics of like we're kind of use trigonometry to solve this problem, and we're gonna like kind of go off and do the. It feels very much like oh, oh yeah, we're like Boy Scouts, you know, kind of going off. Oh, you turn west and do this many paces, and then like ultimately you end up on. Yeah, there's this big castle with a thing, and then like um, you could have just figured out. Oh, there's something buried somewhere. Oh, it's probably in the big castle with the thing. You know, like, so yeah, <laughs> it's not like it's like deeply hidden. It's just kind of like, oh yeah, it's in this square of space with like a a bit of thing that's cut out of it. Yeah, we could have figured that out through other yeah, means. But- the journey was the point, Daniel. The, no, the real, I agree. Real, I agree. It's so the real fun. crown was the friends we made along the way. Yeah. The real crown was using trigonometry to solve this problem. Although, you know, you learn how to do this in Boy Scouts with a piece of wood and a friend standing next to a tree. Ultimately, but you know, it's it's. I don't know. I, I I'm not trying. I mean, I'm, I legitimately love that aspect of it. I legitimately love like, oh yeah, we're just gonna do this. As someone who spent a lot of time doing trig identities, you need you you use none of that. And uh, I minored in math. I legitimately I know a lot of math. Basically, you learn all you need to know trigonometry in like a day, and then they make you sit through four and a half months of it and it's ridiculous but well, yeah. the point is that as you know is the chemistry accurate is very important to drama also very important to drama is is the trigonometry accurate so and the trigonometry is accurate this yeah. is this and- is legitimately good trigonometry the point is, it's not difficult, but th- that's the point. It doesn't have to be. like it, That document has been in the Musgrave family for literally generations, and not one of them has figured it out. And then just this guy who's just a school teacher. Yeah, a, you know, a local school teacher again, like first generation middle class, first generation servant class, up from like you know rural peasant people. He's he's got himself enough education to be a school teacher, and he looks at the document, the poem, and he has enough imagination to read it figuratively, and then think, oh, I just need to do some trig, you know. So he, he well, goes to and, get the treasure, and, it- and he ends up finding just this uh, just this lump of rusted you know useless metal and then it turns out to be the crown of the king that people yeah. like him the the in, the insurgent middling folk put to death all those years before uh, i i love how joined up it is that way and a school teacher would precisely be the kind of person who would get it as something that's a trig problem you know yeah where you know like somebody who uses every day because he's teaching young students and going like yeah there's somebody like in 200 years before like in uh, what so this would have when was the poem supposed to be written? In like the late seventeenth century, I guess. Yeah, it's, it's to, I think, yeah. Like that. Well, at that time, all these. I mean, it's supposed to be written to be just after and... the Civil War, so it's about sixteen forty nine, sixteen fifty, something like yeah, that. Sure, yeah, sure. Sorry to be the guy that kind of like knows the history of mathematical development. All that trigonometry stuff was actually new at that point. You used to hold like competitions in public squares as to who could solve quadratic equations faster before it's, it's, there you go you know. daniel these people weren't the super advanced trig fucking experts you were you are now 
you super <laughs> yeah. what? Like you. <laughs> <laughs> that told you. I'm pretty sure they knew how to do um, uh, Pythagorean theorem, which is all you really need to solve the problem. <laughs> um, yeah, it's basic trig identity stuff. Like it's funny. Like again, not to get into the details of it, you really do like learn basic trigonometry, which is super super useful. Sine cosine tangent absolutely 100% absolutely useful and then like a couple other things and then basically you spend the rest of that year or semester however long you spend on it like doing a bunch of bullshit that nobody should ever have to do past like 1750 it's completely ridiculous (laughs) anyway we have no need to go through my own problems with mathematical education in this podcast because we're already at an hour five and we have a whole (laughs) other episode to cover so um, yeah so my thoughts i love this one um i think musgrave is a borscht twit and I love that Holmes actually has no time for him, really. It's it's like, I wanted to talk to the butler again. And he's such a boorish twit that he has to hit the needle just to tolerate him. Yeah. <laughs> and then Holmes just gets all fucking stoned. The performance here is fucking fantastic. I love Jeremy Brett's performance in this one where he just, he, he shoots up and then all of a sudden everything's a giggle fest. And he's just, he's being rude with everybody and he's and he's laughing uh, that's amazing. And then it switches over to like what Jack was saying, uh, the M.R. James stuff, the the Poe gothic horror kind of stuff here, like very Poe, like getting trapped in a space and dying. That's straight up fucking Poe right there. Yeah. Like um, very, very well done. And I love that Brunton, he, he's so smart. He should have solved this and, and gotten away with it, but he's a poon hound and he scorned the wrong woman. And, yeah, a woman although, with a fiery Celtic soul. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and although she doesn't, she doesn't like she she seals his doom, but because she doesn't tell anyone that he's trapped in a hole, but it's not like she knocks the support away from the the slab or anything. She just she's just like, well, I I'll let him die because he's a dick. Yeah, <laughs> kind of thing. and then she ends up dying too. And and is her body's found in water, kind of a all straight up fucking poish kind of stuff going on in this episode that I just really appreciated. And again, the M.R. James stuff, warning to the curious, it just hits a lot of notes for me here. Like in that story, it's actually uh, buried Saxon crowns that are uh, buried to protect the shores of England from invasion or something like that. And then it's like a spectral guardian of that kills this poor guy who digs up the crown and finds it and it's like well maybe i'll put it back but by that time it's too late Um, yeah oh and the the bbc did a great fucking version of that uh changed it slightly but they did a great fucking version of that tale uh uh, it was for the christmas horror thing i think the bbc yeah Yeah. i'm i'm a bit of a heretic on those um mr james adaptations i'm not tremendous i mean they're good but i'm i'm a bit less i'm a bit less inclined to rave about them than some people for my money the the better version is the christopher lee reading that the bbc did in year 2000 they did a series of four half hour programs where it's basically just christopher lee you know being mr james sat in a chair reading the story and they're just fucking brilliant yeah. And uh, Warning to the Curious is one of those. It's on YouTube. Yeah, so I think we all agree this one's pretty fucking brilliant, too. Like, this is this is a lot of fun, this episode. And I, I do have to shout out Ian Martyr as the, as the local policeman. Harry Sullivan, Doctor Who. Harry Sullivan. <laughs> 
Uh, yeah. So uh, at this point, we're going to take a quick little break with some music, and we're going to come back for our last segment covering the Devil's Foot. Okay, The Devil's Foot from 1988. This is directed by Ken Hannum, uh, written by Arthur Conan Doyle, John Hawksworth, and Gary Hopkins. And we have uh, Dennis Quilly as Dr. Leon Sterndale, Damian Thomas as Mortimer Trigenis. I think I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, though. From what the people were saying as they were talking in the episode, it, was, it sounded like there was like another R there somewhere that isn't in the actual spelling, but uh, I'm just going to go uh, genus. Michael, They should have pronounced it in Italian, then you would be uh, perfectly fine with pronouncing it properly. That's right. Fuck yourself, Daniel, at this point. It's a, a, I I hate to correct you, but it's a hard G, so it's Trigenis. Trigenis? Okay. Maybe that's where I was fucking up. Maybe my hearing's bad, too. Michael Atkins as Reverend Roundhay. Frida Dowie as Mrs. Porter. Norman Baller as Owen Trigenis. Peter Shaw as George Trigenis, Christine Collins as Brenda Trigenis, and John Saunders as Dr. Richards, and Frank Mori as Police Inspector, and another Gary KMCD synopsis here. I get a feeling he likes this series. Uh, an ailing Sherlock Holmes travels under doctor's orders to Cornwall for a period of rest and convalescence. Dr. Watson accompanies him intent on ensuring his friend follows orders, but they are soon approached by the Reverend Roundhay, help solve the most perplexing incident. Uh, a young woman, Brenda Trigenis, apparently died of epilepsy while playing cards with her two brothers, George and Owen, who are now suffering from some type of dementia. There are wild rumors going about the village, including that the incident was supernatural phenomenon. Holmes believes there is a far more grounded explanation, and with the help of the surviving brother, Mortimer Trigenis, tries to determine who would want them dead. 
And uh, we'll go over to you, Jack, for your thoughts on this. This might be my all-time favorite of all of these. I Again, <laughs> I'm just a broken record, but I love this one. The, I love the atmosphere, the melancholy atmosphere of Cornwall and the the, the stone temples and the stone circles that Holmes spends his time. He finds arrowheads and he's looking at them through his magnifying glass. I love all that stuff and the, the melancholy music and all that. And uh, I like I, to I, think I, the stones of blood is happening just off screen during that sequence. Personally. Exactly. Yeah. But that's um, a Doctor Who joke for anyone not like following along. Just Google it. It's fine. <laughs> just Google Mary Tam stones of blood and you'll understand why I made that joke. It's fine. Yeah. Just yeah, exactly, and you'll you'll find it a rewarding experience, probably. <laughs> yeah, so I, I I love I love depressed, rundown, miserable, almost certainly you know wearing himself to a frazzle by just living on coke one minute and heroin the next. Holmes, I love I just love the fellowship between Holmes and Watson here. You know, Holmes is literally working, stroke, junking himself to death. And Watson's just put his foot down and said, no, you've got to go to the doctor. You've got to stop this. You've got to go on holiday. I'll come with you. And basically, I'll watch you to make sure that you you don't keep doing this stuff that that's killing you, you know? And it's like this is part of the arc that runs through the series where you see Holmes grappling with the with the drugs and you know, I'm I'm not going to get into sort of the big complicated question about drugs. It's it's a you know, drug use is a complicated political issue and a complicated personal issue, and I'm not going to moralize about it to anybody. But clearly, within the confines of this story, you know, this stuff is not doing him any good, and he's got to stop it. And you get this moment of uh, I love the performance, this sort of moment of pain where Brett, just without any words, you know, he just sort of looks at he looks up with this pained expression. And it's just like, I've got to fucking stop this. I've just got to. And he, he, it's like he buries the vial of whatever it is in the sand, you know, and sort of covers it over. It's like, he's laying it to rest. It's lovely symbolism. And then he's just after like from there, he's just even worse. You know, he's almost falling over because he's obviously in withdrawal and it's, it's painful to watch. And then he gets into this mystery. And again, I saw this when I was a kid and it's really, it's burned in my memory watching this as a kid, those sequences with the people around the table, you know, the two guys that have been driven insane and the way the music and the way it's shot and the acting, it's really incredibly effective. And then you get on to the hallucination freak out sequence with like <laughs> Blake engravings coming up and Holmes's face sprouting blood and shit like isn't that. The, isn't just, that, isn't that like basically? I was watching that and I was like, "That's like a fuck." It's like, did Ken Russell direct the sequence yeah. for this? Like, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> Suddenly, Ken Russell comes in and does one sequence, and then you get the wonderful moment where Holmes comes round out of this uh, this halluc- this hallucination, you know, like five seconds away from just being driven irretrievably insane. And he sees Watson standing over him, and he calls him for the first and only time in the series. He calls him John. You know, it's that was it's the stuff. that was the first time that that was ever done in stories or adaptations. I think it is because I don't think he ever does that in the original stories. Yeah, um, there are moments in the original stories where Holmes suddenly sort of shows a flash of real affection. I think there's a story called The Three Garadebs where somebody almost kills Watson and Holmes sort of freaks out and 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 Watson's terribly gratified about it but i don't think there's anything in the stories where he actually calls him john so that's original to this but it's really affecting and again the the plot and the themes are joined up so you have like 
Holmes is there because he's wearing himself to a frazzle with his drug use and then he kicks the junk and he's in withdrawal and it joins up with the whole idea of like drugs being the murder weapon in this mm-hmm. in this crime you know so there's there's that and then there's this wonderful humanity to the way it ends where Holmes just says look I I don't he effectively says, I don't feel equipped to judge you. You know, you did this thing and it's terrible, but who the hell am I to destroy your life because you did what the law would have done to this guy anyway, just in a different way. And it's, I mean, that that's another thing that Conan Doyle does again several times in the stories. There's several stories that where the murder turns out to have been an act of revenge and Holmes kind of, he can see the murderer's point and he sort of lets him off. And uh, yeah, it's it's this lovely. There's there's a really lovely humane aspect to it, and I just love the journey from Holmes on the point of death at the start of it, and rejuvenated through the course of the story. Uh, yeah, I I just yeah I love this one. Uh, Daniel Jack kind of did the job for this. Uh, just to <laughs> kind of fill in some details on this, I love the rejection of the sort of supernatural. Like, uh, that's something that like, kind of Doyle was interested in, right? His sort of interest in spiritualism, as I as I Yeah, later it. on, where, you know, yeah. Sort of thing. Um, but I do like that that's, a, that's an element here, you know, in a lot of kind of later stories and kind of later uh, versions of the same kind of, um, you know, idea. It gets pushed too hard, but I think I think it works here. I like the sort of colonialist thing where, you know, like all this stuff comes from Africa. Oh, he's an explorer in Africa and he's got this mm. et cetera, et cetera. And I do I do like that aspect. I think that that's a kind of an important thing here. Although, you know, again, like Holmes as this kind of like a representative of this kind of middle class uh, uh, version, um, always you never never can really kind of criticize that in the way that he should. Um, overall, I like this one. I don't feel as strongly as Jack, but um, I, I would like to kind of revisit it at some point. Um, I think I was maybe a little bit burned out on Jeremy Brett when I mm-hmm. when I watched this one. Quite lovely. I like this a lot. I don't know if I have a lot of notes on it, but I, again, this kind of has the sort of same undercurrents of like kind of a, a Poish and uh, M.R. James kind of sort of thing running through it almost. Hold on, did Jack... Pick three that have <laughs> yeah, to, like the loads of gothic themes. Oh god, I can't imagine why that happened. <laughs> they're they're very connected, uh, and like I love again Brett's performance in this because yeah, he's he's portraying someone who's coming down from drugs, who's like trying to kick the habit, and he's an absolute fucking dick to Watson <laughs> throughout this thing because he's he's just he's just a he's on edge and he's a prick. There's the uh, initial meeting with the vicar where Holmes does his usual thing, like, Watson, uh, deduce why I just sent this guy's into archaeology or whatever. And then Watson's like, oh, well, there's the mud on his clothes and hand and stuff like that. And then Holmes is like, no, you fucking idiot. I read his papers on archaeology. That's why he's, I know he's an archaeologist. It's all in the parish magazine. <laughs> Yeah, I love like, that. Well, you're left-handed because you 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 know you have uh, dirt underneath your right fingernails or something. You know, yeah, like where and, and you, this... you hold the spade with the, and I mean, you know, th- there is the sort of like, oh, where's the double meaning of spade in the context of 19th century uh, sport? Anyway, um, we can get behind. <laughs> yeah, uh, I don't know. But... I think you're reaching a bit there, but yeah, I think so. Um, uh, but I'm, I'm just. 
I'm being a douchebag. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> but no, oh, he's he's just such a unrepentant dick. The Watson in this, and Watson is just like the best friend ever. Like he's he's just taking this shit, and it's no fuck you. And that's very much. That's very much like an intervention, kicking your friend off of drugs kind of thing. Like, you stand by them even they're, if they're total shits to you. Like, the initial uh, scene where they're in the coach going up to this place in Cornwall, Holmes is, he's just this sour, dour piece of shit. And he's like, I wish, I really wish you weren't here, Watson. Like, I, I kind of just hoped you'd fuck off. Like, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm all for going here, but I wish you weren't here. And Watson's like, no, fuck you. Um, in, in the most, you know, polite victorian british kind of thing like he's basically saying fuck you i'm gonna stick with you until you kick this shit and from what i understand like the whole idea of showing holmes eventually actually you know burying symbolically burying the the needle and all that stuff was done to appease like these the, the audience kind of thing apparently they wanted to show the audience that yeah holmes is the kind of like superhero that you can look up to and he's going to kick this, these, these demons and um, be a better person kind of thing. I, I think I read that somewhere in, in a trivia piece somewhere, but uh, mm. uh, which, which well, makes sense. That, if that's why that is a bit trite, but I think they handle it pretty well. They, they uh-huh. handle it with a lot of sensitivity and I, I like the way it's mostly just left unsaid. It's very polite Victorian British. Yes, of course. You know, let, let's not, Let's not get into the intimate details of it. Let's just give each yes, other let's... stern but but meaningful looks, and uh, and and we we understand where the other guy's coming from, kind of thing. For God's sake, let's not talk about our feelings or anything. No, yeah. well, whatever happens, no one needs to get an erection over this. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think uh, Holmes Holmes is kind of touched by Sterndale's willingness to do that at the end, though, isn't he? This is a very you know, this is an incredibly passionate man and an incredibly hurt man. For all that, there's this big sort of colonialist thing about him that we might might give us. Oh, he's a about. lion hunter. Like, honestly, fuck that guy. Like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. What is, what is his work that he's going back to do? I mean, it's probably you know enslaving natives in diamond mines for fuck's sake. But you know, w- yeah. within the within the bubble of the story, this is this is a Colonel Kurtz needs me. You understand? Yeah, that's right. Exactly. <laughs> yeah, but I think it, it does. It's lovely and resonant because Holmes can kind of look at him and see the life that Holmes you know didn't have and and couldn't have had because he's you know he says I've never loved and it's it's like he's he's coming to terms with the fact that that this is just not in him but nevertheless he can empathize with it which is I I I really like that yeah and again we we mentioned the fucking tripping out scene where Holmes um and I'm sure Daniel would not approve of uh, the lack of lab safety that uh, Holmes is (laughs) showing here (laughs) Where, where where he just he just takes that that fucking lamp and just burns the poison and well we got to test it out ourselves or we're never gonna know. Yeah, so, I, know, I know nothing about such things. You know, <laughs> yeah. So and, and and that's a great moment too. Holmes is like Watson, you should get the fuck out of this room. I'm just gonna test it myself and see what happens. And Watson's like, no, fuck you. I'm I'm with you to the end of this. Yeah, and and you know he he helps kick uh, Holmes out of the hallucination, and then Holmes has another moment of fuck Watson you're the best and yeah. I appreciate you and I'm so sorry that I put you in this fucking situation which is also basically an apology of I'm so sorry that I had to you know 
have you along to help me kick this drug habit really like that's kind of an undercurrent i think exactly um, yeah because yeah. like watson waking him up from the from the drug hallucination is kind of a metaphorical version of watson pulling him out of the the junk habit isn't it so yeah yeah holmes's apology just does double duty there and also this this whole episode is really just sort of centered around the fact that the marriage uh, the institution of marriage is just kind of a tragedy that people shouldn't <laughs> shouldn't uphold this as such such a sacred thing where it's oh no you can't have a divorce you know like uh, the, the the sort of religious uh intrusion into the institution of marriage where if only uh the doctor there could have had a fucking divorce and uh and married his lady love maybe none of this would have happened yeah <laughs> And also these, you know, this wealthy family of uh, probably tin miners, I suppose, you know, that mm. all it takes is this feud about dividing up the spoils of the of the tin mine or however they got rich. And uh, yeah, three of them, two of them get driven mad and sent to the insane asylum and one of them gets killed because this guy, no, I, I, I want all of it. I like how, uh, yeah, and I, I like how one of the brothers who goes mad as he's go as he goes by in the in the wagon where where he's being transported to the asylum. It's, it seems like there's a shot of his face where he seems like he has a moment of clarity, almost of like what's going on. Yeah. He, he sees Holmes and his brother as he goes by in, in, in the in the wagon, and that's like some seriously haunting shit like it, it is isn't it yeah, yeah. <laughs> there, there's no good end for that guy like that guy's just damaged beyond repair he's going to be in an asylum for the rest of his fucking life and absolutely yeah. and it's this tragic shit and again that that's straight up poe that's you know well-to-do families or aristocratic families just falling into madness by some reason this in this case it's not supernatural it's you know a very natural reason but uh it's very much the same kind of principle like just your, your your protagonist going crazy absolutely yeah yeah so i, I liked this i liked all these episodes go figure they're they're all fucking great so uh, they're all good who would have thought yeah Except for jack <laughs> of course yeah so um does anyone have any thoughts on what we're gonna do uh, next week i mean should we just do without a clue and, and because we've talked about it a couple times now on this We've mentioned it a couple times now in this series. <laughs> Without a clue. What about <laughs> young young Sherlock Holmes? That's no, no. I've never no. seen Sherlock Holmes, so yeah. yeah. Got the uh, Guy Ritchie films to do last. Yeah. Um, Murder by Decree is really kind of off the table because that was done kind of definitively already by you guys. So yeah, definitively. Yeah, definitively, no one else ever needs to talk about that. No. In my mind, anyway, it was a great episode. That's all I'm saying. But without a clue, might be without a clue. I mean, do we feel like doing a, one more uh, Basil Rathbone, or like throwing on one other like something just to? Yeah, we could do without a clue, and uh, if if Jack wants to suggest a Basil Rathbone, we could pair with it. It'd be good. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have a think about it. But we'll all choose right. another Basil to do with uh, without a clue, <laughs> which apparently we're doing. <laughs> <laughs> Which will be delightful to sit and like to just laugh about that. Well, for a while, I'm, you know? I'm telling you, I'm telling you right now, we ain't doing Holmes and Watson because that. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'll quit this okay. podcast. That, that was... <laughs> you know, I feel okay. like there I'm are fine. people I'm who are going to like. I feel like there are people who are going to strangle us just over doing the uh, Robert Downey Jr. movies. You know, honestly. Uh, well. I don't know. I, I, I think I think uh, I think those movies have aged pretty well. Actually, I think there are some purists who are gonna you know really get upset when we're like, yeah, these are actually pretty good. Well, if yeah. any if any yeah. diehard 
Holmes purist has listened to this podcast, they they probably already damned us like to the pits of hell. Fair enough. Fair enough. I I kind of am a Holmes. Well, I'm a, I'm a lapsed Holmes purist, let's say, mm-hmm. and I I like them so. If you you know fuck off if you don't like them. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we uh, this isn't the Sherlock Holmes podcast. Uh, it, it's just us doing a series, and we're interested in delving into the shit. So, um, as fans, that's that's the whole. If there, if there are three things that we know about the the British canon, here's here's where you know um, the Robert Downey Jr. Sherlock Holmes films are are, are good, reasonably good adaptations. Sherlock mm-hmm. Holmes. B. William Shakespeare did not write the plays. Oh yeah, right. we heard, I heard three, that. Three. William Shakespeare did write the Arthur Conan Doyle uh, Sherlock Holmes stories. Whoa, those are the three things that uh, we should all just accept as given as we move I, forward in this podcast. I, I dig that Shyamalan twist you just threw in there. That's... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> great stuff like holy shit <laughs> he things was 200 never... years old yeah. yeah things will never yeah in night Shyamalan twist there like fucking william shakespeare's a vampire i'm sure there's actually been like oh probably. fiction about yeah. shakespeare being a vampire it's probably an anno dracula or something like yeah. that it turns no, out it... that Sherlock holmes was an adaptation of the original shylock character you know like, at, uh, at this point, at this point, somebody has done every variation of Sherlock Holmes, William Shakespeare, vampires, all of it. You know, the, every possible combination of any one of those things that you can possibly do. Dracula, Sherlock, you know, somebody's done it. So, yeah. So uh, I like to all... think that there's some writer who's going to like listen to this podcast. Like, there's somebody who's going to become the new like J.K. Rowling writing the. William Shakespeare oh. actually wrote Sherlock Holmes, and we're going to get none of that money. Yeah, so it, it's going to be delightful. Uh, I'm, I'm just kind of hoping we're dissuading people from writing at this point because yeah, no, I'm, I'm hoping someone listens. To this is like, well, fuck my vampire stories. Shit, now I don't need to write this. I'm, Nobody like, needs to write any more vampire stories. Yeah, exactly. At this point. We need <laughs> a moratorium kind of on vampire stories for at least a decade. I don't even know what people should write more about now. Like uh, maybe mummy stories, something know. else. <laughs> They're gonna go back to zombies. It's gonna be fine. Yeah, we're just, a, we're just on a continual fifteen-year cycle of zombies and vampires forever. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. No, I just, I just had a thought. It's gonna be, you know, it's gonna be like uh, vampires in a Jewish deli, Nosferatu. <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't even work. Lee thought it was funny, and that's the only that's the only reason I make these jokes, Jack. You don't terrible. understand you don't understand the degree to which I just sit here and make Lee laugh. <laughs> okay, fuck fuck this uh, Jack. Tell people where they can find you before before this thing falls apart. Okay, um, you can find my inaccurate trigonometry at my Twitter ha- page, or handle, feed, I don't know, which is at underscore Jack underscore Graham underscore, uh, where you can find links to all my inaccurate organic chemistry at my blog, Shibu Graffiti, which is at Eredator and Press, and uh, my various podcasts over the years with various people, uh, including the one I'm doing at the moment with uh, your very own uh, accurate chemist and trigonometrist, uh, Daniel Harper. I don't speak German. Trigonometrician. That's ah, yeah, that's it. Yeah. That's that's, it. What, that's yeah. when you're the landed gentry, but only in triangle shapes. Yeah, All right. and also uh, and also vampires. 
Yeah. Yeah. There's. Yeah. All right, Daniel. Where can uh, that find podcast you? that he mentioned but didn't actually name because I expect he was trying to toss it over to me and then I made a bad joke. Uh, so I don't speak German uh, because I don't speak German, but I listen to a lot of terrible people talk about really terrible things and i talk about it on a podcast we're working on a book it's gonna be great um anyway you can find that at uh i don't speak german lipson.com uh, and you can find that we have a twitter a new twitter idsg pod um yes at idsg pod if you want to follow that i think we have like 100 people following that at this point we have nice. one tweet one tweet because i tweeted out we don't have an episode this week i did that this week because we didn't put an episode last week but um we'll do more it's going to be great. It's going to be great. But yeah, go check us out. Awesome. I genuinely thought I did name the podcast, but it's 2 a.m. and I have no idea. Mm. Um, you can, of course, find us at tmbdos.podbean.com. You can find our Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Facebook links. Join the Facebook group. Best way to find out what's going on on the podcast. And yeah, until next week, with uh, we're going to be doing without a clue and something from Basil Rathbone. Yeah, and then after that, one more week. We're doing without a clue and something good. Something. <laughs> wow! Spoilers! Holy shit! Yeah. Without a clue, uh, I actually like without a clue. I saw it once. It's cute, <laughs> but you know, we'll do something cute and something clue. I was going to say blue, but clue. I, I don't know. I have no whatever. Jokes. There are no it's... more jokes. If, if 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 you've listened this long enough, you're you're gonna like it. So just fucking suck it up and and wait for it to show up in your pod feeds. You 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 fucking animals who just can't get enough of our shit. That's that's all there is to it. And and, and thank you very much, animals, uh, for for listening. And thank you guys for joining me. And we'll be back next week to feed your minds with bullshit. Goodbye. Wow, that that took a dark turn at the end. <laughs> <laughs> You have been listening to They Must Be Destroyed on Site. For other episodes, our links to Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and our Facebook group, as well as links to podcasts and websites of similar interest, please visit us at tmbdos.podbean.com. Thank you. Drive through.